Thanks for joining us today on the Harvest Podcast. Now here's today's message. We pray that it will bless your life as you listen. We're going to continue on in our Heart for the Kingdom series today. I want to um, just take a moment and remind you um, in this series, just kind of stepping back one week, looking at last week for a second. Um, we talked about the principle of treasure from Matthew 13, 44. Uh, it's one of two parables in all of the New Testament that I can find that are one verse only. Just one verse, whole parable, enough said. It's kind of like Jesus, you know, was preaching and um, you know, he got done saying what he had to say and then just dropped the mic. Just, I could drop this and everybody would freak out. It's not a microphone though. So, but it's just done. That's, that was enough. One sentence. That's good. But in that parable, it's a parable that we've heard. We've probably heard taught a lot. But I, I believe that we were just, it was taught incorrectly. I believe. And we, we looked at how the three simple reasons that um, it can't be. The parable says that a man um, finds a treasure in a field. He buries the treasure, sells everything he's got to buy the field and with joy so, he can ha- with joy so that he can have the treasure. Well, we, we couldn't find the kingdom. The kingdom can't be hidden and we can't buy the kingdom. It's not for sale. So we talked about it from that perspective and just seeing things the way that God has them laid out. And so we asked you to take home um, Heart for the Kingdom commitment cards. Um, it was just a, a simple white Heart for the Kingdom card looked like this. If you didn't get one of those, there are still some available. And if you haven't turned this in, if you didn't happen to slip it in the offering after service, there'll be some ushers um, at the back doors if you'll see them. What we ask you to do is pray over it with your family um, and ask the Lord what he might have of you to do um, over and above your tithe and offering, your normal tithe and offering. Um, what, what would he have you to commit to as a family that fit with your budget, um, but yet was a commitment that you were happy to make? Uh, we weren't asking you to all of a sudden decide you could give a million dollars. The last time I checked, Michael Jordan didn't go to church here. That's why we ask you to put your name on it. And so um, kids get a little bit, you know, uh, creative, right? Um, I've told this story before one time when I was on staff at the bridge in Mustang, and we were doing a missions, uh, missions convention then, Pastor McNabb came in at staff meeting that next week and said, guys, you're never going to believe this. And we said, what? Michael Jordan made a missions commitment. I said, really? Yeah, for $2 million. When did he start going to church here? He doesn't. That's a kid's handwriting. We barely made that out. So, um, again, it's, uh, you're never going to get a letter in the mail that says, hey, you made this commitment. Now, you know, we're not going to do that. It's a faith promise. What do you feel like God would ask of you to do? And then trusting him to allow you to, to do that. So those are available um, the verse that we highlighted that we wanted you to pray through as you were praying and asking the Lord with this was 2 Corinthians 9.7. It says that you must each decide um, in your own heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. I'm so grateful that that's the way God works, amen? He's never going to put pressure on you. It's never going to be one of those moments. He's going to lead you. It may be a stretch, but a stretch isn't necessarily pressure. So that's what we... Um, that's what we talked about a little bit last week. This morning we're going to continue on with this series as I'm throwing stuff everywhere. Um, this week we're going to look at uh, kind of a different thought. We're going to talk about paradoxical living. What does it mean? The Bible's full of paradox, right? Uh, paradox is, is a word, though, that took me a while to kind of uh, to grasp the concept. I was a little slow on this one growing up, um, but it was kind of like sarcasm, you know, sarcasm basically, when I was a kid, I didn't get it because people were mean, and then they said they were just kidding, right? You know, it was like, oh, you said that really mean, hateful thing. 
And you were just joking about it. That's kind of what a lot of people do with it. And I didn't really grasp that concept for a while. I didn't really grasp um, what it means uh, for, for a paradox for a while. Now, my kids, my kids, you know, kids are always shifting their favorite subject matter, right? Um, my kids have decided, uh, my oldest two, that they love Duck Dynasty. They are getting a steady diet of redneck. We, we use, um, on our TVs at home, we have what's called an Apple TV, and it connects to all these other online video sites. So we, we now have taught Cade how to get on the A&E app. The, uh, that's the channel that Duck Dynasty's on. So he knows how to get on A&E, go to Duck Dynasty, find the episodes that he wants to watch, and then there are, there are times I have to kick him out of the living room. Like, no, you can't watch any more Duck Dynasty. Like, I love those guys, but I can't take one more minute of Uncle Si doing something crazy, right? I, I've, I've had it. I've had it up to here about, you know, three days ago. You know, it's just I, enough was enough. Well, regardless of what Uncle Si may have, you know, ingrained in my, my firstborn child, a paradox is not two doctors walking down the hallway at the hospital. It's not. That's not what a paradox is. A paradox is, though, and this will be on the screens, is a statement or proposition that despite sound or apparently sound reasoning from acceptable premise leads to a conclusion that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or self-contradictory. And yet, it's from this premise, it's from this uh, standpoint of how we are to have a kingdom-centered heart and live kingdom-centered lives. It's a paradox. The whole of Scripture is a paradox. From the natural, looking at it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So you're telling me that this is going to work. Let me step back one second and, and try to make this a little bit easier. Um, kind of get us all on the same page. Uh, in the, in the, the old ways of David Letterman, let's look at my top ten list of paradoxes, okay? Uh, probably the most famous paradox, before we get to the fun ones, is which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which one, okay? Who knows? That, see, you say egg, I say chicken. You can't have an egg without a chicken. Some people say you can't have a chicken without an egg. Who knows? That, that egg couldn't become a chicken if it wasn't chicken there in the first place. So that, that's kind of the idea of paradox. Another one, this, this top ten list, uh, some of my favorites, computer security. Yep, computer security. And then uh, how about political science? Yep, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That's definitely contradictory. Uh, uh, how about a definite Maybe. A definite maybe, yep. Uh, this, this one, I, I never could understand this from my grandmother. She always made a 12-ounce pound cake. Yeah, never got that one. Or, or what about this one? Pretty ugly. Pretty ugly. Number five is 12-ounce pound cake. Number six, diet ice cream. I don't know if you've ever had a sugar-free snow cone, but they're terrible. They are, I'd rather not eat it. I mean, they are awful. Working holiday. How about that one? A working holiday. Or, or how about this one? An exact estimate. Yep, that, that doesn't really work. Uh, and, then, and then because I'm an Apple, uh, an Apple fan, all of our computers are Apple, all that kind of fun stuff. How about this one? Microsoft Works. <laughs> it doesn't. That's why we bought apples upstairs, because the Microsoft doesn't work. 
And then because I'm a pastor, I like this one, short sermon. (laughs) You're in for it today, let me tell you. All right. Now, those are funny, but they help us kind of understand kind of the idea of what a paradox is. It's a phrase that doesn't necessarily line up. It doesn't necessarily naturally make sense, but yet it can be true. And the Bible's full of paradoxes as well. Uh, We've got to embrace, if we're going to have a heart for the kingdom, we have to embrace what paradoxical living means. And so when we talk about biblical paradoxes, they go kind of like this. Number one, the way up is down. How about this one? The first shall be last. Or this one, the path to growth is through death. Right? Man, to die to self in order to embrace life. We have to be willing to take up our cross to follow after him. Or this one, how is 90% more than 100%? Or number five, with God, a might is more than a million. Some of you are going, what's a mite? You'll see in a minute. A mite is more than a million. Or this one, a forgiven enemy. That one's hard. But paradoxical living says, I'm going to embrace these things that seem to not make a lot of sense and trust that Scripture and God is going to work this out so that it makes sense. So that on the other side of it, in the kingdom principles, I get it and it makes sense. And God does something amazing in my heart and life through that. So as we look through this, um, no, we're not having six points in the sermon. Okay? It's not a six-point sermon. It is going to be three points, kind of like we normally do. Um, The the thing about a paradox, though, is it may seem contradictory until you grasp what God's doing through it. So we're going to look at three paradoxes today. They're going to help us develop a heart for the kingdom. These three paradoxes are saved to serve, forgiven enemy, and might over millions. So number one, let's look at the paradox of saved to serve. Saved to serve. Jesus had strong words for a couple of his disciples. For all of his disciples, after two of them convinced their mama to go to Jesus and ask him to let her sons have the best place in the kingdom. There's probably nothing more embarrassing as a grown man than your mother fighting your fights, right? When I was uh, even just a young man in eighth grade, I was playing football. I had gotten hurt on the field, and I thought I was hurt. My coach didn't think I was hurt at all. Turns out he was right. Here I am laying there on the field, writhing in pain, or supposed pain. My knee was hurting, and coach comes out on the field and said, Jenkins, I said, coach, he said, your mama's coming. I said, I'm just fine, and I jumped up and ran off to the sideline, <laughs> Right? There is nothing more embarrassing than for your mother to have to fight all your fights for you. As a man, we don't want that. I remember my friend Aaron Hunter. He was a couple years older than me. He legitimately got hurt in a ball game, in a football game, with a neck injury. Like, put him on the stretcher, load him up in the ambulance, and take him. We're not sure how he's going to be after this. And we found out, Coach, he tried the same thing. He went down. He was there on the field. He said, A.H., you all right? He goes, no, I'm not. He said, well, listen, you better get up. Your mama's coming. He said, tell her to come on. She can get in the ambulance with me. There's a time when it's okay, and there's a time that it's not. But when these two guys, the sons of Zebedee, when their mama comes to Jesus and says, hey, you know what? I want you to let my sons have the best place in the kingdom. I want you to let my sons um, sit at your right and sit at your left. And Jesus says, I don't think you can do what I'm going to have to do. 
Uh, and they say, yeah, of course we can do. We can drink the cup that you are about to drink. And he says, even if that's true, it's not for me to, to make that decision. That's up to the Father in heaven. And then he calls his disciples together, and it picks up here in Matthew chapter number 20, verses 25 through 28. Uh, and Jesus, it says, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm so glad that Jesus taught us that this is an upside-down kingdom, that it works inside out, that it doesn't work the way everything naturally does. He said, you know what, this is going to be different. If you really want to succeed, you really want to get ahead, you really want to do something amazing, then guess what? You're going to have to learn to be a servant. Uh, salvation, when we get saved, when we come to the Lord and, and embrace him, immediately we have to embrace the main, most basic paradox of all of Scripture, that there has been a debt paid for you that you owed, that now someone else was on the hook for, and they took away all of the repercussions of what you have done. That's when Jesus stood in. He went to the cross, bore our sins on his body, and now we follow after him, and he paid the price that we owed. That's the basic paradox of Scripture. I owed a debt that someone else paid, and I don't have to repay it. It's free of charge. All I have to do is, in turn, decide to give my life to him and choose willingly to follow after him. So in the, from that perspective, to develop this attitude that I'm better than everybody else is just complete nonsense, and it's foolish, and it's amazing that one of his disciples, two of his disciples, developed this absurd attitude. We've known people that got this way. We've all known people that thought they were better than everybody else around them. At the end of the day, we're all the same. The Bible says that the same price, I may, I may sin differently than somebody. Their sin may be different, but the same price was paid to cover both of our sins because all sin will keep us out of heaven is what Scripture says. All sin. So it's from that perspective we see really what Jesus is after here. He's saying, you know what, if you want to be great, good. But if you're going to do that, you've got to be a servant. You've got to serve. You've got to be willing to set aside your own personal preferences, your own personal desires, your own personal wants and whims in order to serve someone else to make a difference in their heart and their life. If we, want, if we really want to accomplish what Jesus wants in our life, then we have to choose to want to be like God. That's why Ephesians 5.1 is so important when it says, therefore, to be imitators in, imitate God in everything. Be, therefore, imitators of God as dearly loved children. That's what the, the NIV says. We've got to be imitators of God. We, we talk about this with kids all the time. When, when Josh and Cecily, they bring Shane in here before service so he can see Papa, and uh, when he comes in, there is no doubt that that little boy is Josh's child. There's no doubt. He squawks like him. He walks like him. He does everything just like his daddy does, right? I mean, there's no denying it. Hayes is the same way. Kate and Cecily, they're all the same way. They imitate their their parents, we imitate our, our, my dad was at the house last night. He had been here in the city, and, uh, and so, you know, we're leaving, and, and I'm, he, he's about to leave, and I'm walking him to the door, and we walk out on the porch to talk for a minute, and, and I'm watching, and as he is in front of me, just a couple of steps, I thought, oh, my goodness, that is me. That, that, yeah, I walk like my dad. We use the same barber. We, we need the same help with our neckline because we're trying to do it ourselves. You know, it's just, we imitate. 
As dearly loved children, we imitate. It's just a natural byproduct. It's a natural process that we're going to imitate those that we're around and that we love. We're to imitate God. We're to be imitators of him. So if, we've got to become a, if we're going to become a servant who is willing to give up our personal preferences and our perceived rights, we do so in order to show others a way to salvation. It's one beggar showing the other beggars where they found the bread. That's what, what evangelism and witnessing is. That's what it means when we come to, saving, to salvation. So being a servant, it's the greatest joyride on earth. There's nothing better than learning to serve. There's nothing better than learning to humble ourselves, being willing to give up our preferences, not like out of a codependent state, like you can't be happy unless someone else is happy. I'm not talking about from that perspective. I'm talking about being willing to sacrifice what I want, laying down my life like our master did, and make a difference in lives that are flawed and broken and messed up and hurting in people people all around us. We are saved to serve. We're saved to serve. We also, just like we embrace that we are saved to serve, we embrace the paradox of the forgiven enemy. The forgiven enemy. I really struggle to not make each of these three points its own message all in of itself because each one of them could go that in depth. It's these are really important principles to, to grasp. Because see, from salvation's perspective, we see the world differently. I do, I see the world differently. I don't, I don't look at, at the people around us the same because I wanna see them the way Jesus does. You know, every time I talk to somebody, they go on missions trips and they go um, to a foreign country. Uh, even, even just, um, we, we took teenagers on a missions trip to Mexico uh, years ago when I was youth pastoring. It's just that perspective of taking someone to a third world environment uh, outside of the, the privileged setting that we grow up in here in America. You get them outside of that, all of a sudden pers perspective begins to change. Uh, Rachel loves when I get to go to Africa and she hates it at the same time because when I come home, I'm ready to sell everything and move into a hut. Our perspective changes. Things are different. We look at it completely different. And from salvation, that's the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to see the world differently, especially those who have wronged us. One of the most difficult things in the American church especially is coming to this idea and getting through this idea that, you know what, just because I've been done wrong, because the American way of life is if you do me wrong, I'm going to get even, right? Vengeance will be mine, saith Travis. That's not the way scripture works. It's not the way it's supposed to happen. The way we deal with that is a huge testimony to who we are and whose we are. Paul has some incredible things to say about Christian ethics, the way we deal with each other and the way we, we rub off on one another in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Now, we're not going to read the whole passage. I would encourage you to do that at some point this week. Um, but, but here's the thing, and Paul deals with this. We've all felt the sting of immorality. We've all felt that personally. Someone else, anytime somebody does something that injures you, that's an immoral action. So that immoral action causes us issues. It leaves a sting in our hearts and in our lives. Some of those in, uh, actions inflict more damage than others, but still leave a lasting hurt that needs healing from God. Whether that's that you've been lied to or you've been lied about. Anybody ever experienced that? Anybody ever have said bad things about you that just weren't true? Uh, sometimes they said bad things about us and they are true and those hurt even worse, right? Sometimes it could be that you've suffered at the uh, verbal abuse, at the, the, the screaming and yelling 
verbal insults of a loved one or being physically abused at the the hands of a family member or you've endured sexual abuse or adultery or having something stolen from you. All of these things leave lasting marks on our hearts and in our lives. These are all actions of flawed, fallen, sinful humanity and they're immoral actions and they do that. They leave us hurting. They leave wounds but thank God he brings healing and he brings wholeness and he brings salvation and he covers it over with his grace and mercy and power. And yet, in spite of these actions, Jesus tells us, and Paul echoes the same thing, that you know what? We have to love these people. These are the very people that we're to forgive. These are the very people that we're to let that go from. And that's what Paul said in Romans 12 as he's echoing Jesus. Uh, Romans 12, verse 17 says, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the scriptures say, I will take revenge and I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap coals, uh, burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil with good. Yeah, in, this, in this passage, Paul's quoting Jesus and he's quoting Solomon. He's quoting the Son of God and he's quoting the smartest human being that ever walked the earth. In King Solomon, he, he, he's, he's quoting what they have said and saying this is still true. This is still right. This still makes a difference in our lives. See, when we choose, when we choose forgiveness over uh, unforgiveness, when we choose forgiveness over anger, when we choose forgiveness over pain, it makes a difference not only in our life but in the lives of others around us. When we choose to be like Jesus and embrace the paradox of the forgiven enemy, you know what it does? It makes us more like God. And you know the other thing that it does is we find incredible freedom and healing in forgiveness. Why? Because we find that we were the ones that needed to be set free. You ever found that to be true in your life? That when you offer forgiveness for someone else, you realize that it was you who was really held captive by what they may have done? Yes, did they need to hear you say you're forgiven? Probably so. But did you need to work through the process to give the forgiveness? Absolutely. And as self-fulfilling and as gratifying as that is, that's not why we do it. That's not why we offer forgiveness. I don't offer my children forgiveness because, uh, you know, they, they ate the last Oreo so that they can be forgiven because I want to feel better that I told them it was okay that they ate the last of daddy's favorite thing. That's not it. I offer them forgiveness because Jesus said to forgive those who've done you wrong. Jesus said to forgive in the same way that you've been forgiven. If I want to be like Jesus, I have to forgive. I have to. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Grace and the power of God help us do the things that are impossible. It makes the impossible possible, but it does not necessarily make it easy. Forgiveness means I choose to put the other person on God's hook for revenge and not on my hook. I'm choosing to let God deal with it. Now, before we get too far on in this, now some of you, if looks could kill, I would have been dead 10 times over already talking about forgiveness and the pain in our own life. So you can put your knife and your gun and your stones away. What I'm not saying here is that you forgive and remain in the abuse. Forgiveness means I am am letting you off of my hook for revenge and I'm putting you on God's to deal with. But I don't remain in that. We, we, are, we have to step away from that. 
Forgiveness means I'm choosing to let God deal with it. But that's also why as a society, we don't allow parents be the ones that choose the punishment when our children have been wronged. Could you imagine if my, if my little girl was ever violated? Somebody gonna die if it's up to me. You see what I'm saying? Someone ever does one of my kids wrong and abuse My natural response is not gonna be kind. That's why we are not the ones that deal with it. Instead, we have a, a system and a society has, has created this court system that deals with things like that. When forgiveness has done its work in us, we can give that person that's wronged us the drink of water or the bite of food that they need, which, by the way, are the two necessity, uh, basic necessities of life. Ironically, the Bible says that Jesus is the bread of life and he is the, wa the, the water well that will forever quench our thirst. He will satisfy us more than anything. We're able to offer them the one thing that they truly need to satisfy everything. Yes, we're able to deal with the physical. We're able to deal with the consequences of that. But at the end of the day, we find the, the grace and we find the ability to say, I want to remind you about a man named Jesus who can help heal what's broken inside of you. That's what happens when we embrace the paradox of the forgiven enemy. As we develop a heart for the kingdom, it takes time. It's not an immediate transition. I wish that it was. Man, I wish that it was like flipping a switch. All of a sudden, you'd get it. It takes time, and we have to work through it. We have to allow every encounter with Jesus to change us from the inside out. We have to allow him to work from us inside out. Having a heart for the kingdom and embracing paradoxical living Man, it starts at salvation and it invades every area of our life from choosing to humble ourselves in serving to forgiving our enemies. But it doesn't stop there because it, it perhaps is most evident in our perspective on money. When we talk about the paradox of might over millions, the Bible says that Jesus came to fulfill all of the prophecies that were written about him. He came to establish an, a new covenant that would be written on our hearts and not merely be a set of rules to be checked off as we go through them. Uh, we could de demonstrate we have done it because we've checked off every letter of the law. That's not the way that it works. That's not what God wanted at all. In fact, Amos 5, 21 through 24 pretty much sums up what God's thoughts are on people who want to check off their religious duties. Because uh, it says, I hate all of your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I'll not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. That's what, that's what God said. He's not interested in the, in the performance. He's interested in the heart behind it. He's inter interested in us having the desire to do what he wants us to do, not just to fulfill what everyone else thinks we have to do. He's interested in us bringing an honest representation of what he's done and what he's doing and who we are so that he can continue to mold us and shape us. You know, there's all kinds of references that we, he is the potter and we are the clay. Here's the thing. There are plenty of times that a master potter will be shaping a pot out of clay on the, on the spinning wheel and he will say, you know what, that is not going to work and he'll dump the whole thing back together. You may feel like at some point in time in your life right now, God's taking the whole thing and it feels like it's crumpling down. David felt the same way when he said, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. David understood what that was like. 
There are times that we're going to have those moments that it's like he's dumping everything and pushing it all back in so he can reboot what's going on. He's relaying the foundation of our life. We've got to get that right. We've got to allow him to do that work in us. David really got this. Probably most clearly after his famous adultery and murder and the elaborate schemes attempting to cover up both of them, which led to a visit from, from Nathan the prophet to prove to him that you can't hide your sins from God. And it was from that perspective that he penned verses 16 and 17 of Psalm chapter 51 that says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. God is looking for us to come and be honest. You don't have to have it all together. You just have to have it all on the table. God has been and still is after the heart of mankind, not just some actions that can be repeated by masses. In this paradox of might over millions, we see that Jesus highlights a really important principle for us that a small amount is more valuable than millions because of the heart behind the sacrifice and willingness to give it. In Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44, it says this, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple. And let me just pause right there. How'd you like that? I mean, like for real, let's just picture this for a minute. Oh, we don't have an offering bag in here anymore. We're going we're gonna to pretend that, that this trash can is the offering box. Offering box, everybody's coming down to put in their offerings. And Jesus says, hey, there's a hey, box. Hmm. And like, I wish we could hear what he's thinking, right? That's all. For real? Okay. Wow, that, I mean, that really was generous. Hmm. Didn't you just sell a whole bunch of stuff? And that's what you're giving? Okay. I thought you loved, I mean, I would just love to hear what's going on, right? As he's going through every scenario of what's happening. I'd also love to see the perspective on everyone's face as they come to give, Right? So now Jesus is sitting on that side, and I'm, I'm one of them coming to the offering. Why is he watching? Like you grab your wife, what, what's Jesus doing? Give me some more money. <laughs> Give me your watch. I need, I need no, 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 we, excuse me, Jesus. Give me your watch. It's going in the offering. Jesus is watching. <laughs> Could you imagine the turmoil that was created in that. Man, he sat down and watched. Let's continue reading. He sat down and watched uh, uh, the collection walk into the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. And many rich people put in large amounts. And I think that they were like, yeah, Jesus is watching. Hook it up. Empty your... That's, that's where I think this comes in, right? But then verse 42 says, a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. And verse 43 sums it up. And Jesus called to his disciples and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all of the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she, has, poor as she is, has given everything she had 
to live on. Now, that was way better than that. (laughs) What Jesus is emphasizing as he sees this widow put in what she has to give without shame, I think Jesus jumped up and called his disciples and said, guys, did you see that? Did you just see what happened? This widow, that lady who just put in the widow's might is what the King James refers to as, those two small coins, that little bit that she gave, it was such an amazing sacrifice that it blows everybody else's offering away because it's never been about an amount. It's never been about could you give $100 or $1,000 or a bazillion dollars. It's never been about that. It's always been about the heart of sacrifice, the willingness to put Jesus first in everything and in every way and to say your kingdom matters more than mine. Your life matters more than what I'm doing. Everything I have matters. Uh, What you're doing matters more than that. God's always been developing a heart of radical generosity that demonstrates to the world that there are people who are like him. He also never has been interested in an amount. That's why the principle of tithe is so special. It's not about the dollar amount, but but developing a heart to honor God in little as well as in much. It's also why there are not places of honor available in the kingdom for those who give large amounts, but only for those who give with radical generosity. Our human nature is to honor people for large, large offerings. It's really more country club style giving. Kingdom giving is about honoring God with a heart of joyful generosity. See, Jesus levels the playing field all the time. Jesus was always dealing with that and saying, ah, we're going to level the playing field. It's never been about an amount. It's always been about the, the, the heart of generosity, that radical approach that says, I'm willing to sacrifice so that you, oh God, can have everything that I have. And the other thing that I find amazing is what God can do through a group of people who will live with radical generosity. There were some amazing words of wisdom that were shared with me by a friend years and years ago. That simply says, many hands working together and soon the work will be done. I have quoted that about a bazillion times. Many hands working together and soon the work will be done. And as true as that is, it's also unbelievably true when it comes to the kingdom business of building God's kingdom. Because when we all work together and we all do our part that God has called each of us to do, it's amazing how God brings it all together for his good and he works it all together so that he gets the glory out of it. God will take what we have in our hands and use it if we're willing to lose it. God will take what was little and make it great. He'll, but he'll, he'll take what seems insignificant and he'll boomerang it back into our lives with a blessing that comes right back around. As we're willing to let it go, I heard, I heard a pastor say this um, just this week, that, that if we've never truly lost something if we know where it is, right? We've never truly lost something if we know where it is. So we've never lost love, and this was in the context of a funeral, we've never lost a love, and if we know where they are, if they're in heaven, we know. Uh, if we know we've given uh, and we've sown into the kingdom, you know, we know where that's at, and it's advancing the kingdom. So we've never lost anything. If you know where you've, where you've put it. That's what happens. God takes what we put on deposit with him. He blesses it and causes it to come back around in our lives in, in amazing ways. See, that's the beauty of paradoxical living. That's the beauty of what God's doing. He leverages it in our life to make a difference. God takes the paradox and when we embrace that to what doesn't seem normal to everybody else, to the world around us, people say, you give to your church money? You give 10%? Are you kidding me? 
Are you sure that's what you're going to spend how much time volunteering up there? Are you crazy? It doesn't make sense to the world around us, but here's what happens. God uses that. You're going to believe God for healing? Are you crazy? You're going to believe God for what? No, wait, you're, you're going to go on a mission trip to Africa? Don't you know they'll kill you over there? We've heard it all. We, I, still to this day when people hear you, we, some of the places that we've been. Uh, when we were in Mozambique, I sure wasn't calling my wife to tell her we had to flee the country because of a suspected coup. Uh-uh. But you know what? We did. We got in the car and drove our happy selves to South Africa. People think it's crazy. It's all for the gospel. It's all for the kingdom. We're going to advance them. We're going to do what in our neighborhood right here? We're going to give, we're going to invest in the schools. Are you kidding me? Those kids, the schools take our government money, our tax money anyway. We're going to invest in them anyway because it's kingdom business, amen? It's not something that makes sense naturally, these paradoxes of, of biblical living. But as we embrace the paradoxes found in Scripture, we find that God uses them to develop a heart for the kingdom and a life that is wholly devoted for him. There's an interesting article that I read in Leadership Magazine. It was written by missionary John Yoder. And he said that while he was serving as a missionary in, in Laos, he discovered an illustration of the kingdom of God. Before the colonials imposed national boundaries, the kings of Laos and Vietnam reached an agreement on taxation in the border areas. And what they did was they came up with this plan that said those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated them with Indian-style serpents were to be considered Laotian. But on the other hand, those who ate long grain rice, built their houses on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons were to be considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined their nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose culture they, uh, whose cultural values they exhibited. So it is with us. We live in the world, but as a part of God's kingdom. We have to embrace paradoxical living and choose to live according to his kingdom standards and values. Loyalty, not location, is what determines which kingdom you and I belong to. We talk about having a heart for the kingdom. We give of our treasure so that more real treasure, true treasure, according to Scripture, can be deposited again more so into the, the, the treasury of heaven. Souls, people, that's true riches, according to Scripture. That's what he does. And we put our treasure on deposit with him so that he can use it for that purpose. So this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I know it's uh, an overcast, spring forward, time change kind of Sunday. Here's the thing, though. Maybe, maybe in, in your life, you're here today and you'd say, you know what? I want to embrace paradoxical living. I've been trying to do this thing my way. I've been trying to, to figure out how to make the Bible line up with what I've thought. I tried to make the kingdom of God fit into my nice and neat little box and say this is the way that it is. But today I want to choose instead to do it God's way over the world's. And today I want to embrace that. And part of that means I have to come with forgiveness and I have to come and ask and repent and ask the Lord 
once again, or for the very first time, to forgive me and save me and set me on his path. Are you here this morning? And if that's you, you identify that, would you slip up a hand? You're ready to embrace God's way. You're ready to embrace salvation. Okay, anybody else? All right. Maybe you're here today and one of these paradoxes that we talked about really hit home with you. Maybe you've struggled finding a place to serve and give back, to devote yourself, to humble yourself in. Uh, maybe you're struggling with forgiveness. You know, maybe, maybe you've allowed unforgiveness to settle into your life. And today you want to choose to do it God's way. You want to embrace the paradoxical living that's found in the forgiven enemy. Or maybe you've struggled with that. There's just no way I could honor the Lord and trust him. And